Yeah, no, I, I, I come from it from the point of, and I've told Luke this, like, in listening to how this is done, this is not my experience with church. It, it feels and sounds way more culty than church than the church I grew up in and been around. That, my friends, is my brother-in-law, Blaine Martin. We'll hear more from him in just one second. But first, let me tell you about our friends at Mission Resource Network. You have a vital role in God's mission. MRN helps you fulfill it meaningfully. I've known the folks at Mission Resource Network for many years. They know you have a burning desire to fulfill your calling, and they have some of the top people in the field of missions to help you. As you work to share the hope of Jesus with a broken world, the folks at MRN can help you overcome your most challenging missions problems, and that's not all. One of the things they do best, which I really do appreciate, is their expertise in the field of missionary care. They know how to help you take care of the missionaries you send out as well as the families you leave behind. Do yourself, your missionaries, and your missions committee a favor. Reach out to MRN today at www.mrnet.org and get a free article, Avoiding the Missions Black Hole, by emailing missions at mrnet.org. That's missions at mrnet.org. I think the problem with American Christianity is that we are far more American than we are Christian. And I say that collectively, but also personally. I think that's what I struggle with. I think it's what we struggle with, is that the air that we breathe becomes more real than what we are supposed to live by faith with. And so uh, the air we breathe as Americans looks very American. And so there is a unique story that Christianity Today has been telling through a podcast called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill about a church in the Pacific Northwest led by a founding pastor. That's somewhat debatable, but um, if you listen to the podcast, you know what I'm talking about, but by founding pastor Mark Driscoll. Uh, this church uh, rose from uh, basically not much to being a very large numerical and a large metaphorical presence in American Christianity. Mark became a very prominent figure, uh, rising to the New York Times bestseller list. Um, but that was because his church actually paid for him to get on there. Google that story. That's interesting. Um, but that's not even one of the stories that they talk about on this podcast. What they talk about are a lot of the ways that the abuses have happened in that church and a church that went from nothing to being uh, this mega church with thousands and thousands of members to dismantling uh, basically overnight. And uh, all that happened in a just uh, a story that almost seems like it should be on a uh, TV show. Instead, it's on a very well-made, uh, highly produced podcast that I think is very insightful. And what I wanted to do on this podcast is to kind of do like a, a, an introduction to the story um, from the perspective of three people who are professional uh, churchmen. So I have uh, Jason Miller, Jonathan Storm, and myself, and my brother-in-law, Blaine Martin, who is, you know, he's a Christian. He's a part of a church, but this is not his the world that he lives in professionally. And I think his experience of this story would be very similar to many of y'all's experience of the story. And so what I wanted to do is have him come on after listening to the podcast and help as a kind of a guide so that I think everyone can have some uh, connection and entry-level places uh, with this story about Marcel. So uh, without further ado, that's the podcast jason miller blaine martin myself and here is jonathan stormont doing that thing he always does get, get ready for some awesome there it was rest in peace um as you could tell jonathan stormont is with us today jason miller is on the ones and twos as well and for the first time ever my brother-in-law from the law office actually just the accounting offices not the law office the accounting offices of maxwell Locke and ritter Blaine T. Martin. Welcome to the show, Blaine. Thanks for having me. It's nice to be to finally be on the podcast that I uh, kind of seeded, gave you gave you the uh, inspiration for. So glad to finally make well, it. Well, 
I don't think I'd try to take credit for that. (laughs) (laughs) Like I said, Blaine, I would have you on soon after I started the podcast, and it just happens to be 463 episodes later. Fair enough. Are you bringing him in for legal help? Have you finally found yourself under (laughs) fire for some of the libel that you have been spinning okay, through the years? Okay, it's for some accounting questions, and let me just say in my defense, I thought it was a good investment to take our church missions fund and put it all into Dogecoin. I thought <laughs> I thought it would work out really well. Elon Musk was going on SNL. I thought we'd have a, a nice help, but um, all that to say, we have no missions budget anymore, <laughs> and I might be going to jail. <laughs> well, you, you've outlived the you're over under <laughs> that all the other priests have on you. <laughs> no, no. So what? So the uh, the genesis for this podcast is um, the three of us, Jay, Jonathan, myself, had uh, already decided we need to talk about Marcel. Like this this podcast, Who Killed Marcel, uh, top on the iTunes charts. Everyone's talking about it. It's super uh, central to what we try to do in the podcast of help people navigate faith in the modern world. And uh, so there's so much to t- talk about. We want to jump into it, like for a whole dedicated podcast. And then I get a text from Blaine who I had told, you've got to listen to this podcast. And he said something like, oh, this is amazing. He says, I have so many questions. And Blaine, how long have you been married now? 11 years. 11 years. So I've known Blaine for over a decade. We've had probably six really good years together. And (laughs) we've we've done this conversation so many times. I love the idea of having someone who, uh, like, isn't a pastor, uh, didn't go to school for this, uh, doesn't know many of these names, uh, talk about this, because I think there's a lot of people who are hearing this for the first time, and they come to this like with n- not like 20 years of knowing about Mars Hill and like reading right. Driscoll stuff and hearing about him and hearing all the reaction pieces to him. So I was like, Blank, just don't ask any of the questions. Let's not have this conversation. Let's do it as a podcast. So that's why we're here. So, Blaine, how, how do you feel now? Like, this is, like, years in the, the making for you to get on the podcast, and it's now time for it to happen. Yeah, it's a lot of pressure, but um, hopefully uh, I got some good questions here that you guys can answer. Because well, I feel like, I, literally, I thought of all, all of you guys when I'm listening to this podcast, right? I'm like, oh, yeah, like, I can... Yeah, store... See how... Basically, Stormont <laughs> is, like, the Church of Christ, now. Mark Driscoll. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're listening to a podcast about an abusive pastor who's apparently even corrupt <laughs> and violent, and you thought of the three of us. That's really great, man. Thanks. Mm-hmm. So, do you want me to start with like, yeah, just like go, or do I, you? I don't know. Like okay. when you first listened to it, like were you thinking, like, what, did this sound unbelievable? Unbelievable to you at first, like just hearing like the. De- well, you know how it starts with like at the end, and so I, my mind is just racing as to what he did to to be, kind of be forced to resign. Um, because I, I know nothing of this. I, Mars Hill, I know in talking with you, like that's Rob Bell's church. So that was like kind of my first question was like, wait, Rob Bell's church collapse? What's going on? Um, yeah, for the record, there's a Mars Hill in Grand Rapids, Michigan, who is since, uh, who like still exists and sends out cease and desist letters to people like Jonathan Stormont who rip off their stuff. <laughs> that was a long time ago. Yeah, that's- they don't. I, it was letter, not letter. Okay, yeah, just one time. So yeah, obviously it's a different, uh, different church all the way up in the Pacific Northwest, not in uh, in Michigan. Yeah, but I've been which Mar- that started around the C- same time. Which, Jonathan, which Marcel sent you a CCSS? <laughs> Gosh, it wasn't. So, uh, 
Luke, you're such a jerk. You're such a jerk. I had a YouTube video when we worked on at the hills together where I made a Numa esque kind of video, and I br- I put it on YouTube that way. And it wasn't Mars Hill; it was Zondervan that sent me a letter that said, "You can't. We have apparently copyrighted the Holy Spirit." <laughs> Is what Zonderman was saying. <laughs> Numa. Okay. So that's the story. Like I said, he's not allowed on the premises in Grand Rapids just because of that. There's some concern <laughs> about the safety of. Um, yeah. Anyway, all that to say, two different churches. Which I'm assuming at some point, if you're doing a story about Mars Hill with Mark Driscoll, at some point Mars Hill with Rob Bell has to be brought up. It, it seems like they were both coming up at the same time. Uh, there's obviously some overlap. Um, yeah. Can we talk about that? Just for a sure. second. Do you remember when Emergent Church, they were all the same? So it's Tony Jones, Andy Crouch, Donald Miller, Rob Bell, Mark Driscoll, and we're all like, oh, these these are all somewhat related. Yeah. And y'all remember that season? Of- oh, yeah, for sure. For sure. And uh, to the point where it was basically just everyone who's a, a young, I, I guess Andy Crouch might be a couple years older than those guys maybe um but basically it was just like yeah and robert weber was in there too in some places yeah so w- what you had ancient future stuff. yeah so which is like a group of basically like young pastors that were uh influential that get that got clustered together because the thing in common they had was age and notoriety right and, and they were like uh recasting some traditions uh you know, in very different ways and trajectories, but it just, they were, they were kind of deconstructing. Um, is that right, Jay? Would you say that they they were, well, I think at that time, they it was were casting hard, aside. It was kind of hard to sift and sort the difference between like substantive innovations and stylistic innovations. And some of those people were making really substantive theological moves. Others, I think, were making very like stylistic moves, but it all kind of got lumped together as this right. new thing that felt really uh, subversive and 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 kind of punk and renegade. And I, I think that's what got confusing. There was that some of those people were making real theological moves, and other people were making stylistic moves, but it was all kind of lumped in. Does that sound? I right remember that. Yeah, it does. I remember the differentiation when Velvet Elvis by Rob Bell came out. And Driscoll just pummeled uh, Rob Bell for his like post foundationalism stuff. On mm. what if it came out that the virgin birth wasn't real? I remember that specific thing that Mark Driscoll did a whole sermon and about Rob Bell being a heretic because he was he wasn't even saying the virgin birth wasn't real. He was using that as an example, and it was then that I was like, oh, so they're not. One church, two locations. <laughs> yeah, that's no. yeah, yeah. Well, that's different. a question I have written down here. Is like, and you guys touched on a little, but like this concept of the emergent church. So, like, they they talk about these things. Uh, the emergent church. There's another like maybe gospel network that they talk about. Like, what are these? Are these actual like nonprofits that are working together to do this stuff, or is it just kind of in name like? Can you give me some shed some light on on both of those? Jay, why don't you take this one? Yeah, I mean, I'm, and I'm a little fuzzy on this. So this is like early 2000s, right? Late 90s, early 2000s. I think what you had was, um, I don't know, around the country, maybe in the UK as well. You just kind of had these kind of 
popping up kind of new church planters, new um, churches. And I don't really know how they all found each other, although the podcast ties some of that together. But it wasn't, I, I think Emergent did, there was a point at which it became like a collective, like actually they kind of formalized the sense that they were going to all like support one another or network. And I'm probably getting the details wrong, but um but I think it began as just this kind of organic sort of trend that was popping up of like different places around the country, around the world, church planters creating churches that looked and felt very different from kind of the mainstream 1990s era or traditional churches. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's also and it was, like, go ahead, sorry. conferences had a lot to do with yeah. bringing them together. Conferences are like the inevitable next step in the life cycle of any like church, like church trend, I feel like. Yeah. yeah, yeah. There are new councils. Yeah, and then, yeah, that's right. And so you have Emergent Church, who like they did a, conferences together, obviously. Um, but then you get together for the gospel and Gospel Coalition, which those groups seem to be more about a theological alliance and a cohesive theological vision, whereas Emergent Church seemed to be more of like young guys who were kind of doing new stuff. And at the time they didn't realize the stark differences between them theologically. And I would imagine like together for the gospel and gospel coalition in some ways are like a response to, Oh, wait a minute. Driscoll found himself with a bunch of uh, liberals and he doesn't want that at all. These are the worst thing in the world. And uh, yeah, let's, let's draw a, like a line in the sand and say, this is who we're with. So one of the plot lines I didn't know about, was hearing um, that quote of Driscoll where Driscoll early on said, the church needs artists, philosophers, and mystics. And um, Rick McKinley from Portland talking about how there was later in Driscoll's trajectory like that he took a real decisive turn theologically. I always just knew Driscoll as the loudest and angriest neo-Calvinist. Like that's that's all I ever knew him as. I didn't know that there was this whole history before that it sounds like that there was a more um, open-handed theological posture there is sometime earlier. That's yeah. We need church needs plural leadership that get that Driscoll. Yeah. yeah. That, yeah. that guy, that, that he, he sounds pretty interesting. Um, so here's one of the things to answer your question. Blaine, is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Jonathan, comedic see, relief is what you, he says comedic relief. There's one person Everybody on here. You didn't know before you could, we've texted about Blaine. I mean, my goodness, I know Bubba, like your best friend in Arkansas. You can know my brother-in-law's name. <laughs> I'm so sorry, Blaine. That's fine. No, I mean for Luke. <laughs> so the, um, it does seem like this is an interesting, uh, part of the sub subterranean part of the story. I think when we started having a country that became more post-denominational, what happened here is more neo-denominational. Like, they, you know, we don't want to be Baptist or Presbyterian or Church of Christ anymore, but we started, you know, the fault line started shifting again, where now it's your part of the TGC or, um, you know, yep. you, you like John Piper, you like Rachel Held Evans or whatever. Yep. And I think this that's kind of what was happening here with the emergent church. Yeah. Okay, but it's not like a, a another like they're not getting any monetary support from these groups. Like 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 the SBC or something like that that I know they mentioned. Well, I, these are just kind of like you said conferences and 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 commonalities between them like 
I think the actual Gospel Coalition, which started Acts 29 with Mark Driscoll, has taken on a more substantial role than that. And so I think they actually have, like the president of it is now um, Matt Chandler in Dallas. And so they actually have people who, who like are there. And so I, my assumption is that it, it's not full like SBC taking 10%, which goes towards like their mission budget. Like they're not taking that to run mm-hmm. their head, but like that's their mission, uh, like arm of the Baptist church as I understand it. Um, but like it does have some more substantial roots than just like a conference. But initially, yeah, like the emergent shirt, like Tony Jones, who is the voice on the podcast saying a lot of people got fired. Mark got fired for being a <clears throat> whole, uh, like he wasn't getting paid by the emergent church to, to do that. Okay. Yeah. Let's talk about Mark Driscoll at all. <laughs> yeah. So my question, I, I need to know each one of your, like, if you guys have interactions, I know Luke, you said you were at a conference where he spoke. Uh, I need to know kind of each one of yours, your, uh, your interactions with him are as close as you've been to him. Great question. Yeah, mine was just at a conference. I was standing while he walked in. Uh, I don't even think he preached there. Only uh, only one time I've been in the room with him. Obviously, Jonathan, as the Church of Christ, Mark Driscoll, has a lot more connection than I do. About, is that what I am? My best friend, Bob, that you've already brought up, uh, Southern Baptist pastor, went to retrain, which is a two-year program that Mars Hill did. And he was in the he finished his degree there his unaccredited training there in 2014 and the last class he had was leadership by mark driscoll hmm. wow. and he he said i mean he has got some crazy stories about uh mark showing up being like you know frazzled and being like guys i'm really he said he just was really tired and some stuff's about to come out <laughs> i was like yeah it did it sure did. Wow. Um, and saying stuff about getting like his family threatened, you know, people threatening to show up at his house and beat him up. And, mm. you know, I'm not sure how much of that was his own perceived, you know, yeah. way of being in the world and how much was real. But that's that my connection with him is I've listened to a few sermon series or a few sermons, not series, uh, read read some stuff early on and thought he had something to say and then found myself increasingly disillusioned with him because he just seemed so angry and full of himself and, and stuff. Yeah. And then when I was riding on Patheos, uh, the last year, all of a sudden he showed up on the same channel I was on which means I'm cross-pollinating with, with him. And I was like, what the heck? Are we on the same team? Obviously, Scott McKnight agrees with me. You and Mark Driscoll have a lot in common. Jay, I assume you've never been uh, at a conference with old Driscoll. Yeah, we, yeah, just kind of... So no, no like personal connection. Just um, like in the 2000s and the 2010s, uh, like he loomed pretty large. Um, yeah in some ways as a foil or as a um, like the, the school I went to for undergrad had a very particular theological disposition, which is sort of the other view. If you want to break Protestantism into a really, really um, broad stroke binary uh, that you've got kind of Calvinists and Arminians, these kind of two kind of big packages of belief about the nature of 
God and salvation and God's relationship to the world and God's will versus our will. So there's kind of these two big lanes that you can be in. And uh, the school that I went to and then the, the large church that I worked at for a long time, they were kind of in the one lane. And Driscoll's sort of the very um, well-publicized and uh, very provocative champion for the other lane while I was uh, coming up during those years. Mm, got it. Okay, so this is – I think this somewhat dovetail, dovetails, but I know we talked about him going from like this wanting the mystics and things like that to doing a turn. Was that in the same time when he was so-called – You know, they said, well, now he's reformed. And can me some some enlightenment on this reformed? I obviously think of like Martin Luther when I hear that, but like what – give me the, the simple answer to that on what that means for him and or – this whole movement at large. Jay, why don't you take this one? Uh, you guys can fix it when I'm done saying it. But um, yeah, so uh, you're right about Martin Luther. Like, um, I mean, in theory, like all Protestants kind of trace their lineage back to the Reformation. But um, there's actually a lot more going on there than just Luther. But in really gross broad strokes, you can kind of lump Luther and John Calvin together, and that's not entirely fair. But, you know, Luther is this Catholic guy who... Um, I think has a really profound and beautiful encounter with the grace of God that he meets in the new Testament and with the freely given gift of salvation. And so that lights Luther up and then he kind of sets loose this whole movement. And I don't think he intends it to be a breakaway, but it is. And then John Calvin becomes like the, um, one of the really sort of heavy hitter carriers of that movement back then. Um, I think Calvinism and re- like, yeah, you have re- the reformation, which gives birth to reform thinking um, and Calvin is a real figurehead for that. So fast forward now like 500 years and you have what you might call like the new Calvinism. And so you kind of have like soft Calvinism and then you have this kind of like hard edged, um, sometimes even called like Neo Calvinism, um, that sort of takes a summary or you might even say a caricature of Calvin's ideas about God and salvation and really like makes a thing out of them. Um, as a, as a point of culture, I don't know if you guys remember this Stormont and Luke, but uh, sometime in the, in the 2000s, Time Magazine did an issue on the 10 biggest ideas that are shaping the world right now. And the new Calvinism was one of the 10 biggest ideas that was shaping the world in this Time yeah, Magazine article. that's right. Remember that? So yeah, big, yep. um, big and important idea. And it spawned a worship movement. In fact, a lot of the worship songs that most like evangelicals or Protestants sing in the U.S., a lot of those songs come from artists like guys like Chris Tomlin and David Crowder who really got elevated because of this like new Calvinism movement. And you heard John Piper preach passion, right? You heard the John Piper sermon about don't waste your life and don't Mm -hmm. show up with your seashell collection for God. Mm -hmm. John Piper Mm -hmm. is like the, one of the sort of elder statesmen of this movement. And then theologically speaking, guys like Mark Driscoll kind of are in that lane. Um, And Mm -hmm. when they say reform, they're talking about that whole history. Luke Sturman, how'd I do? That, that's it. Yeah, I think that's that's a pretty good summary. Summary. But was it was it a a change in his theology when they say mm-hmm. well he he became okay? And so I'm going to ask a really stupid question here because <laughs> my idea of Calvinism is predestination, and that's yep. that's where it starts and ends. So is that kind of what am I missing? There's a oh, certain, I guess I'm sure there's a lot. No, but, it's good. Story. So Calvinism and Churches of Christ have a quite a bit in common in our more toxic parts. Like there's a real certainty that 
you, you've got the Bible and God and a system that figured it all out. And, well, I can tell you why that person has cancer to, you know, and th- these again are not the best representatives of the, either one of those traditions. But um, I, I could see a, people who are wanting to be the answer people appreciating that that thing. So it is a theological shift in which all of a sudden you can say, Here's, God is always doing something, nothing happens without reason, and which may or may not be true, but you tend to be able to guess what the reason is or, or be able to am – I, am I, would you all agree with that, Jay Luke? There's a certainty that's kind of attractive yeah. in I, Calvinism. Yeah, part of that's because it has such a high view of God's sovereignty that it wants to say that every, every little thing that happens – on planet earth or in the universe, right? It happens because of the direct will of God. Yeah. And they also like have a really airtight system. I mean, Calvin was a lawyer and you read his institutes, his big tome where he works out Calvinism and it reads, it reads like a lawyer would write a theology and and that might be bad or that might be good, but it's kind of this like airtight system where everything fits together like a puzzle. Um, And I think that generates that kind of posture that you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. It, let me answer the same question with a different angle on it, though. So, Blaine, when you're saying, like, he came back a Calvinist, he was probably late 20s, I think, when this is happening, late 20s, 30. And I think that's pretty normal for a lot of people, even a pastor, to have, like, a major, like, spiritual sure. transformation at that time. And so I assume there's some people who probably wouldn't have noticed a substantial change in what he did at that time because— in a lot of ways, like your faith for a lot of us is kind of incohate up until that point because, uh, like, that's just normal, like, life cycle of faith. And so, for him to come back and all of a sudden he's just spouting Calvinism, I, I don't think it probably would have been noticed substantially by the average person who's not studying theology. Got it. Okay. Um, <clears throat> Kind of continuing the theme of you guys defining things for me, <laughs> they mentioned this uh, postmodernism movement. What is that? I mean, I know what those words mean <laughs> together, but I don't know what they mean in, in yes after this modern context. <laughs> Let's move on. Uh, I'll take a question. Jay, I'm going to send this one to you. I mean, you're going to have to answer this one. But part of this is just like the philosophical worldview that, like, the emergent church. Is stepping into because there's a lot of writing that was going on at that time, and then I'm going to stop talking, Jay, and let you actually answer the question I said you could answer. Um, but th- there was a lot that was going on right around 2000 in which people were talking about like just the philosophical approach towards like life, not just the theology. That I think p- was part of the lumping that happened with the emergent church in general. Jay, yeah, yeah, and I'm going to also get some of this wrong or miss the nuances, but like. Um, it's one of those things, right, where the philosophers 100 years ago started doing things that are shaping the rest of us today. And the philosophers 100 years ago discovered things like, well, maybe all knowledge is subjective. Maybe there's no such, they start saying, maybe there's no such thing as objective knowledge. Maybe everything that you think you know, you only think you know it because of how you're like located in the world and the eyes through which you see things. Um, there's a phrase called a hermeneutics of suspicion where you kind of read everything suspicious that there's an agenda behind it. And so you read texts that way. Uh, you read mm-hmm. movements that way. You read power structures that way. And so you kind of see um, ulterior motives lurking behind everything. Uh, and um, 
a lot of, and then like a lot of relativism. So kind of stacked on top of that is the idea that maybe, maybe there's no like absolute truth or maybe, um, maybe we're so conditioned by our location in the world. Like the, where, where, where Jason Miller is and being a, a white man and living in South Bend and having my life experiences means that I'm so conditioned at looking around that like I'm incapable of getting my hands on anything objective or real. Uh, like those are some of the threads that are woven into postmodernism that I think they start getting woven in a long time ago, but they kind of hit mainstream consciousness and theology and culture. And I think of the emergent movement, some of what you had that was confusing was maybe some of those people um, saw that and were ultimately reacting against it. And mm-hmm. other people were maybe kind of working with it or mm-hmm. folding some of those insights or however you want to think about it. But I think that's one of the ways it got really confusing is it all got tagged as like quote unquote postmodern, but come to find mm-hmm. out some of those people were actually just trying to be perhaps really savvy about holding on to a thoroughly modern, not postmodern, but modern mindset, but trying to like yeah. translate that into new spaces. And other people were actually like um, integrating some of these things into their worldview. How do I do guys? Great. Uh, you should be a teacher, Jay. Um, I, so I, I want to build on that because this whole podcast, one of the concerns that it gave me was I do, I do see the hermeneutics of suspicion all behind this. Like, and, and it's been really good. I mean, Mars Hill needed to have a magnifying glass put on it, but when I was at Highland, um, I just got worn out by the hermeneutics of suspicion. And what I mean by that is I think there's not there's not any podcast for godly pastor serves his or her church for 35 years and then resigns and dies. That that yeah. doesn't happen. And I I think when you when it comes to a podcast like this, which again needed to happen because this was a toxic place and it needed to be exposed and so many people had looked up to it. Um, as a church growth model or whatever, but the people listening, like like Blaine, when I was at Highland, one of the things I said on a pretty consistent basis against the hermeneutic of suspicion is, what do you do about John and Evelyn Willis? Luke, you know who that is. Yeah. The, they're this older couple who have for decades just been gentle, full of the fruits of the Spirit, just pure goodness. And if you were to try to use the hermeneutic on suspicion of them, like, why does he bring cookies to all his Bible classes? He just, he's insecure, right? He's wanting us to like him. And, and I think the problem with that hermeneutic, that way of looking at life is it sees through everything and can see nothing. Mm, Wow. Does that make sense? And that's really good way of saying that. I want to, I want to turn that back on us and make sure we pause as we listen to the rise and fall of Mars Hill and don't universalize this horror story to all mega churches, all churches where – because here's the thing about Mark Driscoll for me. If you are in leadership in church, there is a certain level of vulnerability that comes. You suffer in, in working with the church just read Moses. Mm-hmm. I mean, the the people that you're trying to serve, you're trying to lead them to greener pastures or just serve them faithfully, do funerals, do weddings, do counseling, teach the Bible. And, and, and again, I know there's 
toxic pastors and there's toxic systems and talk. I, I get that. And I'm not trying to say Mark Driscoll is just one bad apple in a, um, but also congregations can be really difficult. And one of the reasons I think Mark Driscoll was so appealing to church pastors is I remember hearing several pastors say, he says some stuff that I wish I could say from time to time. Mm-hmm. Like, who do you think you are? <laughs> yeah. Are you just talking about with no, Luke? Because I feel that with him all the time. Yeah. No, that's Yeah. Th- no, there hey, is so this- I'll, can I just echo? Sorry. That, um, yeah, I, I could be doing some Instagram live conversations. And last week we talked about church hurt and the rise and fall of Mars Hill came up. And a pastor friend uh, DM'd me. And they were just kind of like commenting. I don't think they were disagreeing with the fact that, like, like you said, Storm. Like, I think it's this is an important story to tell. It's just not the whole story. And they talked about how um, they said, I think one reason that pastors gravitate toward the idea of large churches is that, like, um, that like the pastor role, like everybody wants you to be their best friend until they don't need you anymore, and then they dispose of you. Um, yeah. Everybody wants you to be sort of on call and available to them, a doormat for their. Um, you become almost like a concierge, a hotel concierge for their spiritual life rather than a pastor of a community. And it seems like there's something about how Mark made himself invulnerable that I'm not saying that's good. I'm not saying that's right. And I'm not saying that. And I think the other thing is like to try to understand it isn't to excuse it, but we'd be better off to try to understand it than to just throw stones at it without asking how, how we get there. Right. Yeah. The word you just said, I think the primal sin of, of Mark Driscoll uh, was in in vulnerability, not being able, trying to have authority without vulnerability, mm. um, and you know I, I get it. Like that's a great temptation for any pastor to to serve a church is to su- choose a certain kind of suffering, and it, you know not not that anybody should feel sorry for you or anything. It's a great and noble calling, and every everybody suffers in life. Every calling has its form of suffering. And to try to reduce that by not by not, you know, by squashing out anybody who disagrees, I can definitely see the way that my pride would like to do that. And I can also see in this story why it's important not to allow that. I, I don't think you can underestimate that there is part of the story <clears throat> that we just like to trash someone and especially someone who's like big and prominent and for for some mm-hmm. people, it's just like the same appeal of preachers and sneakers, where it's like, oh, these are pastors. I, like I like trashing them, and I like them being the villain in the story. Now, I, I think Driscoll did some awful stuff that we need to be aware of, mm-hmm. but like there is part of that where you go. Part of the reason we enjoy this isn't always as honorable as we'd like it to be. Um, it does feel a little bit like gossip listening to the podcast, doesn't it? Mm. Uh, that's the question like that's i I know it's not i know i mean i think what they're doing is good and right and honorable but it does feel a little bit like gossip Uh, like there is a thin line there like it's a top of a fence Uh that they could easily fall off of and uh yeah Yeah. there's there's something to be said there uh blaine i know you got a list of questions well well this kind of here like your your obviously your perspective of listening to this is much different than mine did did any of you find yourself? And I know Jonathan kind of alluded to this, but like you listening to it through through the lens of a pastor, like, well, really, that's not that bad. Like you said, like you wish you could say, or there's pastors that wish you could say this. Like, well, I I, I get it. Like, is there any point when you kind of 
almost sympathize with him. Um, yeah. I, I, I personally, Blaine, I feel like he, what is it? The id? Yeah. Is it the id? Is it? Yeah. I feel like I'm listening to my id on the podcast. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like he's taking your worst impulses and, and put them out loud. Right. Mm-hmm. And just, and, and he's, he was, uh, if you were just to take, and I would, I would bet a lot of pastors feel like me, you know, like, uh, I bet that would feel pretty good to say. What you know? what scares me is being 28, 29 and at a position with the social clout mm-hmm. where you have like the fathers and even like the, the grandfathers of the faith who are bowing their knee to you because they need your social collateral. And yeah. he, to use your metaphor, like if he's like some of our worst impulses given steroids and given the the bright lights and the big stage I, I like i can't throw stones at him because i'm very grateful that i was never put in a position where a, a right. super immature luke even more so than now you can make the joke um was given a position where i had influential people like imagine if tom wright was having to say you know what I, I want Luke to support my writing so people read my books. And so 28-year-old Luke is going to be someone that I try to like just go along with no matter how terrible the stuff he says is. Like that like that's I don't want to live in that world. <laughs> I, it would be a bad world for all of us if that would have if I would have had the situation where he was in at 28. Like it's just sure. not good for anyone. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree as far as like um first of all it'd be really dangerous to listen to this podcast and be like None of those temptations are in me. I mean, that'd just be really dangerous, right? I think um, in church spaces, it can be frustrating when, uh, like, everybody has opinions, and some of those opinions are really unformed and un- unhelpful, and um, and you, you might even feel like you're supposed to like pretend that everybody has a good idea when they don't, yep. and. Um, you know, like you're putting your heart into it and you're giving everything you've got. And if it feels like there are people who are taking advantage of that effort rather than coming along board to be a part of that effort, that can be really, really hard. And it can make you want to um, like do, and especially if you care. I mean, I think another thing to, I don't know if we want to get into this, but like, I think another thing that creates the conditions for this is how you think about the nature of your mission. You know, I was, um, I was, it, it's funny, they do the Willow Creek clips a lot with Bill Hybels, another pastor who had a different kind of falling out, but also a falling out. And I've heard Bill Hybels at conferences often say like the local church is the hope of the world, but they have a clip of him saying Willow Creek is the hope of the world. And it was kind of eerie and shocking for me to hear that. Um, But of course, I mean, I, I, I don't know the church I serve. It's kind of like my kid. I'm like, it's unique. There's not another one like it in the world. And she's so special. And like, she's, you know, like I I feel that kind of like, parental pride about the community that I'm a part of. Yeah. Um, but I could see how that could sort of metastasize into something beyond, um, an appropriate pride and into a kind of like, we are either going to save everyone idolatry. Yeah. Um, but man, that kind of, um, that way of conceiving of one's mission can justify anything. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. It, it, but part of well that said. is like taking the quotes and all of a sudden, extrapolating like a whole ideology based on a single quote. And to some degree, like the, who do you think you are yelling clip that's become like in the, like the bumper music. Um, Like, isn't, isn't that him? Like, 
yelling at, at guys who are being abusive to their wife and you go like i i, I get we want to like kick him while he's down but if if you ever are going to yell at someone from a pulpit yelling at a guy who is a church leader who thinks it's okay to be abusive to a spouse seems like an appropriate time to do that like there is a so like there's can, a time for that let's talk can we talk about that like here's my here's my biggest thing i'm wrestling with so jay blaine luke is my name luke yeah, thank you yeah i i, I you're not on. doing great with names today. so i'm just saying so one of the things that has always been interesting to me about driscoll is the way he talked to men and the way they kind of responded and I think it's why so many people excused all of his excesses. Um, David French has a great article about this as somebody who used to be a Martin Driscoll supporter. And now he's listened to this podcast and just said, I mean, it's a great article. You should look it up if you're listening to this, where he ends by saying Martin Driscoll made the mistake of trying to make Christians into men instead of men into Christians. And wow, I really like that's wow. really good. It is. It's a. It's a great line, and it's a great article. Uh, he says, Mark Driscoll met an overreaction of the culture with an overreaction of his own, and it's not one that should have been justified. Hmm. But I don't know if this is too much for me to share with my own family. I care about the crisis of masculinity or the demise of guys, whatever sociological language you want to use for why Jordan Peterson and YouTube are discipling young men to you know, bad things. I don't think churches are talking about it, and the ones that do tend to, you know, talk about it in ways that I don't resonate with. But my grandma used to come to church with bruises on her face, and the church didn't say a dang thing about it. Mm. And I run stuff through that grid, mm. and I I, it, I have a lot more horror stories from my family about church abuse with women. And I hear that episode, the things we do to women, and I I hear what Mars Hill did, and the way that it was, you know, you know, just a parody of, uh, you know, the the men shouldn't look at porn. Your wife is your porn. Mm. Men, you know, you should only have sex with uh, a woman after you get married. Treat her, honor her well, and then just do whatever you want with her. And she's got to do it. Like, hold on, you know, a lot. It, it feels like you're objectifying women in that in a very different way. That's so. But my question is, what do you do with that? Because if if churches that are gospel centered, and I mean the whole, you know, Philippians two kind of gospel, Jesus centered, Jesus based. If churches aren't doing this, there's always going to be. Mars Hill's overreactions. And I don't I don't hear anybody else talking about this. So what do you think, Blaine? What do you think, Luke and Jay? Well, I, I feel like this podcast, let me say it like this. Whenever you preach on divorce in churches, the wrong people always hear the wrong things. Mm. <laughs> That's a good line. The people who are wanting to the people who are wanting to get divorced because they, they're not happy with their marriage anymore and they don't want to work on it anymore. They hear you say, yeah, it's okay. And the people who are divorced and heartbroken and 
they hear shame and judgment. No matter what you say, it feels like that's the case. And I feel like the same danger is here with the Rise and Fall podcast, that people who are like, see, trying to disciple men, that's what happens. And and I don't want that to happen. I, I want us to learn from why was, not how he did it, but why was Driscoll's message so appealing to all these families and, and young adults and men and women? I mean, you hear a lot of women in there say, you know, it seemed like it was good at first. And yeah. <clears throat> anyway. I, I saw someone what, made this what do y'all say to that? little graphic about <coughs> people who connected to Mark. And it said, uh, one, it was people with a deep father wound. And so they, they talk about that in the podcast some. So like if you have this deep father wound and Mark's going to step in and be this, you know, Enneagram 8 sort of saint figure for you who has all the answers and all the confidence in the world, uh, you're going to follow him. And then the other group of people that follow him were those who equally had a sort of uh, self-aggrandizing vision for their future. And they were hustlers that wanted to get to the top and saw Mark as a meal ticket to get there. I think that's a little mm. bit reductionistic. I think there are people who, like you said, found something that connected to a masculinity which they could buy into. Now, I don't think you need to wear an affliction t-shirt and like talk about cage fighting in, uh, in your sermons right. to reach men, which was kind of like the Driscoll move. Um, mm-hmm. Not that I haven't had an affliction shirt in my life. I just need to be honest. I'm going to confess that before Blaine says something about it because he's been there on Christmas. I think my mother-in-law got me one one time and I'm not proud of it Like because we all have... Uh, like a past, which God has delivered us from. But I'm just saying, like, I'm going to put that out there. I've been there. Um, but, yeah, but here's the thing. Like, I, I think Driscoll, like, did, did some things that try to make people more of or more of men than of Christians. And, and I think that's where it it, uh, it falls apart. Jay, what do you think? Oh, man. Uh, I think I have a lot of thoughts, but I don't know if, where they're going. Um, first of all, Storm, I think you're right about, like, um, it's easy to throw stones and not ask like, what are we doing to actually, um, I mean, here's, here's one, something, something that's interesting to me, like Richard Rohr, one of the ways he made his name in the seventies and eighties was taking men on initiation rituals. Cause he yep. says that right. young men don't know what to do with like their mask. And like, it has to be channeled and formed through discipline and initiation. And they have to learn that like life is not about them. And if, if you look at the five points of yep. Rohr's male initiation rights, they're they're not totally on Driscollian, right? Or right. The, the the messages about like yeah. this is what you have to be confronted with if you were going to mature and then live your life and sacrifice for love and for the good and for God. So it's interesting that that's the case. I just think it, it all falls apart around. Um, first of all, like that screaming thing. I think part of it for me is like um, to me to, to to speak with such contempt toward people. Um. Mm. I think there might be very few settings in which that's appropriate, but never at the distance that he enjoyed between him and the thousands of people that he was speaking to. I've been across the that's table. That's right. That somebody, is a good point. And I've, that's a good I've, word. And I've lovingly put somebody in a corner. And I, and I, you know, I'm, I, like, I, th- I think the most loving thing for me to do right now is to try to break in there and to call you out. You know, But that's in the context of yep, relationships. Yep. So I think maybe that's, that's one good. thing where it goes sideways. But the underlying idea... And I, I mean, um, yeah, I think about it all the time with our church community. I'm like, 
it's painful because I, I look around and I can just like really clearly see the different sort of sectors of life experience that we're not doing a great job of sort of reaching into and speaking to and helping people grow up. And I, I think um, when you see somebody doing that in one lane so dramatically, uh, it, it's definitely something that we should think about. Yeah. Uh, Brian Zahn's got this line about um, it was like a men's retreat that has sort of Driscollian flair to it. And he said, it's, uh, it seems like we're doing more of a boys club than a men's retreat where we're just encouraging mm. men to stay as boys instead of to get them to grow up. And uh, mm. I, I love Roar's stuff. I mean, life is hard. Life is not about you. Like th- those are hard words that you need to hear. And I think uh, Roar is right to identify that we don't have these initiation rights. And so in some ways you have this, like, if you want to call it a masculinity crisis, Jonathan, Jonathan like, I, I, like that's where I would camp out if I was going to go that direction. Say, like, you have people who are just kind of in this ambiguous lost boy state of going, when do we become a man? How do we, like, how do we do it? We, we need people helping us, but I think there are ways to do that that are healthier than others. Um, mm-hmm. Blaine, we're running out of time. How many more questions you got? You got a few? <clears throat> I mean, I just have, like, kind of little things here and there. Um like, I think one thing I definitely want to talk to you guys about is the, the story of what I termed here, like, that elder entrapment was unbelievable to me. How so? Like, and I, well, that, well, the whole story in general, like, if, if it, it's true, you know, they're painting the full, the full picture in that these guys just kind of redlined the bylaws and Mark didn't like it. So he set up kind of this deal to get them, you know, kicked out or, or fired was unbelievable. I've preached on it before. <laughs> they don't know that they're the ones. That yeah. Right. Um, and, you know, and like where it sucked to me where they're like, you know, we're not going to tell these guys anything. They walk in here under the assumption that they're getting fired. So they pop off and then they're like, well, we weren't going to, but now that you've said that, like we have to, that was just kind of like <laughs> really unbelievable. And then it kind of just goes to this whole bigger thing. And what Jay kind of mentioned to before of, it it seems like all the clips they share are of him coming at everything with such anger and like such a whip rather than like a carrot um, that I don't know how anyone really resonated with that. Like listening to this, like how does anyone going to this church just get yelled at every Sunday? That's like, a great question. Wayne, he reads a book a day. Okay. <laughs> so that's a great question. Though. Like how do like how do you continue to show up week in and week out for that? Like. I, I think there's a lot of questions about like how you get there. The thing that, it, and this kind of connects to the message that Jay was getting from that pastor that he mentioned, is there are a lot of pastors who have stories that sound just like that, but they're the ones who are getting fired on the spot. There are a lot of pastors right. who commiserate with that um, from them being on the receiving end of getting fired. And so when you hear the Driscoll story and like how he went this direction, where like there are a lot of pastors who learned to act that way because... Like churches did that to them. Like I, I know of a guy who has a similar like leadership structure at the church that he started years ago. And you go like, how how are you going to have two yes men as your board, and then you're the third board member and set it up that way, which is very Dris- Driscollian. And the reason is because he was on the losing side of a situation just like that that a church did to him. And so mm-hmm. that's like it, we can be yeah. aghast at it, but then you go, yeah, but that's also what a lot of churches do to a lot of pastors. And so it's just the same, it's the same game plan, but it's just someone else executing it. But, you know, okay. But here's the thing. Like I, I get it. I do get it. And I, I, I think I've been blessed in not having 
churches not working at bad churches. So I, I get that I don't have the PTSD that some pastors do. At some level, though, you have to acknowledge it's just not Christian. Yeah. And, w- and what I mean by that is authority without vulnerability is not the way of Jesus. And uh, vulnerability is not fun. It does mean woundability. It means hurt, being able to be hurt. But you do not, you cannot make, it's, it's kind of like what Jay was saying with speaking with that authority, who do you think you are to those guys? Even if we're all on board with the message, and I am, I'm on board with that. You know, I, I want my, I want the person who is hitting my grandmother to have heard that. Um, but he didn't know them. He 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 didn't. He couldn't be hurt by them. He could just scream at them. And the same thing is true about the way that church was organized. You know, the the one mega church that I have worked at, um, the main pastor who you and I both know, Luke was vulnerable. He was in homes, hospital rooms, responding on emails, taking the criticism, not fighting back, you know, that if you're going to have a mega church, the only way to do it and you got to have leadership structure where you can't, you know, be be available to all people and, you know, you can't ever have a consensus all the time on when you have to make urgent decisions, but you have to be vulnerable. Yeah. You have to be vulnerable or it just isn't Christian. Well, I was going to say, I actually have that written down here in kind of that metaphor he uses of the bus. Like when I hear him do that, like, and he's proud of like, I want a pile of bodies behind the bus. And I'm thinking when I hear that, what that doesn't sound Christian at all. Like, why would you want that? So, I, I mean, I think that's kind of what you're saying, right, Jonathan? Like, It is. And, and here's the thing. You always reap what you sow with this. I've seen this happen, you know, dozens of times. Like he ultimately became one of the bodies behind the bus. Hmm. Because he created the very thing he created, turned around and ate him, and that's what happens. The gospel you preach—I mean, this is Scott McKnight. The gospel you proclaim get is the eventually forms the church that you pastor. Oh, that's good. And yes, if you—that's what happens. It's like the song about David killing his tens of thousands, and then you go, "Oh, let's read the Psalms where David talks about having ten thousand enemies." Like mm-hmm. you kill ten thousand people, well, you're going to get ten thousand families who are your enemy now, and that's what ultimately happened. Jay, what were you going to say? Uh, just that, and I, I want to be careful about this because I'm not trying to like leverage the story to make a theological point uh, about a theological perspective that I don't resonate with. But I do think that like if your theology center is a transactional sort of relationship with God. Um, that like the center of the center of everything is the fact that like this transaction happened in the atonement. Well, then you, then then the theology doesn't center who we are becoming. It centers a, a, an evangelistic transaction. And I, I just, I, I think that that flesh that out a little bit more. Yeah. So flesh that out a little bit more. And again, okay, let, let me be really clear. I'm probably being unfair. I'm, I, again, I'm not trying to like leverage the story to like score some points against the theological system I'm not a big fan of. But I do think that, like, um, if the gospel to you is Jesus died, so you go to heaven, if, if that is the center of the gospel for you, rather than the way that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John preach the gospel, which is the kingdom of God is here, it's been brought through Christ, and you're invited to live your life in the, in the reign of the kingdom, um, that first version I said, that's a transactional gospel, right? A transaction has happened and you can, you can get in on it 
if you avail yourself of it through this evangelistic moment, right? It, um, there's nothing, there's nothing inherent in that about character and formation and who we are becoming and whether we are healing and whether we are, um, becoming ourselves more and more like the character of God. But if the, if the center of your gospel is the reign of God is here, it has been made available in Christ and you are invited to become a participant in the reign of God. That's not transactional. That's, um, that's about who are you becoming? Are you becoming the kind of person who feels at home inside God's kingdom? And I just think the first one's going to generate a whole sense of mission that is like, you like this bus, like is just going to like go and and get out of the way because we're saving people and um, without any regard for what, what they're becoming. Yeah. We're just, we're just saving them as opposed to like, um, uh, yeah, I just think that like welcome the to life and the kingdom of God. And yeah, yeah I think that- it's a little, it'd be a little harder. And I, again, I'm, I mean, I, I'm sure you can find abuses like this across many theologies. I'm not suggesting that like these theologies are the only ones that can create abuses, but I do think that there's gotta be, it can't, it can't be we need to be able to ask whether the particular theology that was animating that community has any of the responsibility for what happened in that community, not just the person, but the, uh, but the theological operating system. No, that's fair. And, uh, yeah. Yeah, that's good. You know, the interesting thing about Mars Hill, if I, I you know, I, again, this is, we're, we're a ways away. It did seem like the bar of, discipleship they were trying to raise up from an average mega church but i wonder what kind of fruits they're looking for outside of like you know so taking over the city of seattle um by outbreeding them and <laughs> yeah yeah no, but I'm, I'm not trying to be mean on this I, right, i'm right. really wondering what it would have been like on the inside as just an average church family in there because um, what I know about like, like Matt Chandler, for example, uh, he would be in the same kind of theological downline in the sense of, of yeah. charismatic Calvinist, but they're real big on discipling and discipleship and families discipling. And so I, I'm, I'm wondering, I, I wonder what, when they say the term discipleship, what they mean by it what what Mars Hill would have meant by it. If it would have been more culture war discipleship or because uh, if it's multiplying Mark, that doesn't seem like a good idea. Yeah, but yeah. Yeah. real quick, I'll just say this. One of the other heartbreaks and I feel all the time in my, in my own work was that listening, I, I just was struck by how we collectively uh, in the church in the West, I think it sort of imbibed, um, a whole worldview that only knows how to evaluate things quantitatively and not qualitatively. Right. More is always better. Yep. And I think the church mir- mirrors the world in that regard. And so how could you evaluate it? The, qu- the quality of the character of that ministry or my ministry or anybody else's when we've almost completely sort of lost our sense for that. And we just know that numbers is, is apparently better. You know? Yep. This is a very kind of, I guess maybe you know the answer or you don't, or maybe I'm asking you to kind of, uh, well, I, I tried to, after listening to this, kind of then went to search out to see, in listening and knowing what I am gathering this picture of Mark, 
my assumption is his response to this is going to be unbelievable. And so I go to Twitter to see something and there's nothing, I don't see anything right away. You know, I went down a couple, couple scrolls, but like, so one, a, do you know if he's had a response or B kind of, what do you think he will, his response will be? So so far he, I thought there hasn't been a response. He's, uh, Cosner, was saying Cosper was saying that he's reached out to him with no response. Um, I, I want to hear Jay and Jonathan, your take on what do you think he's going to do? Cause so far there has been no response from him, but for me, I've always th- thought that as we've kind of mentioned, vulnerability is his path to maturity for Driscoll. I mean, most eights like it is, but for him, like that's what maturity is probably going to look like for him going forward. And I think we'll have an opportunity to see if that's, where he's going or not as he responds to this. I think there's, what, four or five more weeks of it. But, uh, Jonathan, what do you think his response is going to be, if you had to guess? Oh, boy, I would be really proud and happy for him if he if he owned it all. If he said, that's on me. That's not like Jesus. I started off well, and it got to my head, and, um, and repented. Yeah. I mean, I think that would be the most redemptive thing that could happen. Uh, what if I was an eight, if I was him, I would pretend like that's another Mark Driscoll, <laughs> uh, man. That's weird. Uh, yeah. That podcast, that's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> that's crazy. Crazy time to have this name. And anyway, Phoenix church, let's <laughs> keep preaching. <laughs> you know, I, I don't, I don't think unless it's total repentance that he's going to defend himself or anything. Cause it's a pretty well researched, um, podcast i don't think it's trying to be mean yeah. uh so yeah. i my rear end muscles might be clenched every time the next episode j- drops but that's <laughs> the only reaction i would do if that was me oh gosh <clears throat> jay do you see anything different i would just say that if i were in mark shoes just knowing knowing myself um it'd be really hard to humble myself in light mm-hmm. of these stories but it would be even harder if I had moved on, launched a new church and was trying to build a new brand in a new place that all of that new sort of the fact that the stakes are raised again around me would only make it harder for me to own uh, what I've done and where I've come from. So that's just, if I were in his shoes, I don't know that what's happened the last few years would make it easier for me to own what's going on. Yeah. Unfortunately, if I was a betting man, I would assume that uh, somehow he's a victim in all of this. I feel like the victim narrative is going to get played. And um, like you all, I think it's a great story for the kingdom of God if uh, repentance is in the future. And uh, like, I know that'd be hard for me too if I was him. So, um, you know, I pray that is the case. Well, Blaine, did we answer everything you had? Yeah. Um- I'm a Mars Hill expert That's now. Right. And, um, Wait, can I, ask, can I ask Blaine one question? Okay. Sure. I'm looking to Blaine for permission and Luke for time. Um, just what does this do to your heart with regard to the church? I don't know. Like, mm. Does this feel like a fluke to you? or like, If you're just being yes. really honest. Yeah. Yeah, no. I, I, I come from it from the point of – and I've told Luke this. Like, in listening to how this is done, this – is not my experience with church. It, it feels and sounds way more culty than church than the church mm-hmm. I've grew up in and have been around. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's just because they're different. And I know there's these new, 
you know, th- these emergent churches. And, and the one thing I wrote down too of like these much higher standard of membership and how he mentioned that all his members had to reapply and do all that stuff. And the message boards and the William Wallace stuff and all that just sounded very much like a cult rather than a church to me. And so I, I've, I'm not leaving it disheartened at all. I, I just kind of see it. Yeah. More of, and I know they list the other kind of downfalls, but it, it doesn't discourage me. That's good to hear. Can I, can I close this out with asking Luke one question? Sure. Who do you think you are? <laughs> <laughs> I want to point out that we made it through this whole thing without making jokes about Luke turning 40 next week. Wow. Oh, yeah. Um, that's, <laughs> that's so true. That's so true. Yeah. Oh, welcome. Yeah. Welcome to the club, man. Well, like Driscoll, after this uh, podcast is dropped, I'm kind of vulnerable and exposed and I can't really say anything. Oh, I thought you were going to say my career is done. <laughs> <laughs>